This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners, and Happy New Year. I hope everybody had a fabulous holiday season and we're ready to go. We have a clean-shaven version of The Rounds Table for you now with a brand-new theme written by my very own kin, Brendan Quinn. Thank you, Brendan, for writing us a fantastic new theme to kick off 2017 and what a year it's going to be. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host and a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. We have our long-lost friend, Dr. Jay Spiegel, who's back today, and he's going to take us through a couple of very interesting articles in the literature. Jay, why don't you introduce us to the article you chose this week? Sure. Thank you for having me back, Kieran. Uh, So my article is entitled Alternative Strategies to Inpatient Hospitalization for Acute Medical Conditions. And it is a systematic review of systematic reviews looking at alternative strategies to inpatient hospitalization, namely outpatient management, as well as quick diagnostic units, hospital at home, and high acuity observation units, and found no difference in mortality, hospital readmission, uh, or other disease-specific outcomes at increased patient satisfaction at a reduced cost. And so for those of you interested in the reference, it's published in JAMA Internal Medicine, October 3rd, 2016. And the first author is Jared Conley. So Jay, just help us frame this study. Why was it uh, important in the larger context of the healthcare system? Sure, Karen. The hospitals where I work are often operating at over 100% capacity. And some of those patients, you know, we always wonder whether they in fact needed to be admitted for their workup. Any sort of alternative strategy to inpatient hospitalization that can be done safely is of interest to me and uh, most of the people that I work with. Great. So you said this is a systematic review of systematic reviews. That sounds complicated. Why don't you help take us through the design of this particular study? Sure. I thought it was rather meta myself. It, in fact, is a systematic review that uh, had the goal of finding basically all the organized evidence on this topic. So it searched for only systematic reviews on alternative methods to inpatient hospitalization for medical conditions. So these conditions were specifically acute medical conditions, not including obstetrical conditions, surgical conditions, or psychiatric illnesses. And these would be conditions that usually would require hospitalization. So take us through some of the important inclusion criteria and how they assessed the quality of the studies in this particular approach. Sure. Their inclusion criteria really were trying to find any systematic review that had at least two studies evaluating one or more acute medical conditions usually treated in hospital. These studies could be either RCT or observational studies, and they limited their search to conditions in adults 18 years or older. And were there any key exclusions uh, as far as the conditions that they were looking at? Only that the conditions weren't OBGYN, surgical, or psychiatric. So anything anything in the medical realm that would require hospitalization were things that they were looking for. Great. And then how did they assess the quality of the systematic reviews that were included in this systematic review? They used a tool called the R-AMSTAR score, and that's a score that's been validated for assessing the quality of systematic reviews themselves. It's basically grading on looking at whether there was any bias or whether they were able to pull in all the relevant data, and they give a score out of 44, and that's how they graded it. Right, and it's an 11-point scale for those of you who are not familiar with it, and then each point corresponds to a low, moderate, or high level of quality. 
Jay, what these alternative units or alternative strategies to inpatient hospitalization, break that down uh, for us a little bit. What does that exactly mean? Sure. So they had four alternative interventions that they looked at. The first one was outpatient treatment with close follow-up. So that would be patients that presented to the emergency room and were thought to be able to be treated with going home with their treatment and then seeing a physician either in the next couple days or in the next week or so. Another one was a, a quick diagnostic unit where somebody comes in who is primarily looking at, at rapid diagnosis of a new cancer and, you know, to try and get all the testing organized in a quick fashion to help with that diagnosis. The third one was called hospital at home, where the patient was thought to need the inpatient level care, but actually had a good home system and was amenable to it. And they thought that they could deliver it within the patient's home. And then observation units where people came in and they had things like cardiac chest pain that wouldn't necessarily qualify for admission to a cardiac unit, but they kept them in these observation units and tried to both carry out testing and make sure that they were safe before they were able to go home. Um, and so what was the primary outcome? How are they evaluating the effect of these uh, different alternative strategies? Right. The systematic reviews that they were looking at, they wanted to assess four primary outcomes. So the first one was mortality, which I think we, we all would be very interested in. The second one was an increase in hospital readmissions. The third one was either patient or caregiver satisfactions. And the fourth was cost savings. Well, those are really interesting outcomes. I think it's important they're covering both systematic level concerns with costs to the healthcare system, obviously very important patient outcomes like death and readmission, and then also more on a more um, personal level, so, you know, people's satisfaction. So I think that's a really well-designed study to look at very important outcomes. So, Jay, take us through the main findings. What did they find after they did all this meta-systematic reviews of systematic reviews? They found 25 systematic reviews, and they thought that in general, the methodological quality was moderate by the RM. The first intervention that they looked at, which was outpatient management. So the conditions that they looked at included low-risk PE, as well as DVT, and then chemotherapy-induced febrile neutropenia, community-acquired pneumonia, pneumothorax, diverticulitis, and renal colic. And when they looked at at mortality, they found that there was no difference in mortality between outpatient management and admission. When they looked at uh, rates of readmission, they found that for most conditions, there was no difference in rates of readmission. They did mention that for febrile neutropenia, there was a 14 to 21% chance of readmission if the patient was treated as an outpatient. But they also mentioned a secondary finding that patients treated with outpatient oral therapy actually didn't really fail. So it'd be interesting to know why exactly these patients were readmitted. Okay. And so what about the quick discharge units, Jay? These were primarily to work up conditions that mainly looked at for a new cancer diagnosis, but also things like unexplained anemia. There was no comparator group, but when they looked at mortality, they reported mortality at 0.3%, so very low, and this was in about 4,000 patients. Admissions to hospital post-quick diagnostic unit was around 3 to 10%. They were actually able to arrive at a diagnosis in around 6 to 10 days, so, you know, not terrible. Okay, and what about the uh, hospital at home uh, programs? They primarily focused on CHF exacerbations, COPD exacerbations, community-acquired pneumonia, urosepsis, and cellulitis. 
when they looked at mortality data, they found that it was either equivalent or improved mortality when patients were treated with hospital at home. For example, the odds ratio was 0.94 for CHF. When they looked at rated readmission, they again were either equivalent or lower when using hospital at home. So one study found a relative risk of 0.68 for readmission. And, and this was generally true across the other conditions as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's some reassuring messages in there. There's probably some bias towards, you know, a lower risk patient population. So I think you should just be careful to interpret that that it's actually a lower rate of mortality than hospitals, although that's, it's possible. And then, Jay, did they find anything different for observational units? Uh, so for observation units, these were conditions that focused on chest pain, but other conditions included were asthma or AFib as well as COPD. Not really much in the way of mortality data, but when they looked at readmissions, they found no difference in the rate of readmission in these studies. And the rate of readmission in general was around 5 to 10%. And what about the other two uh, primary outcomes, the satisfaction and the cost savings they wanted to look at? When they looked at all of these interventions, there were really high rates of satisfaction with the alternative methods. I would say that most of these interventions were assessed by themselves. So just they asked people, were you satisfied with being in a quick diagnostic unit or hospital at home? But uh, some studies did actually show that patients stated they specifically preferred this as opposed to admission. With regard to cost, the savings were uh, were uniformly less. For example, for chest pain observation units, the savings were somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,200. And just to put it in a slightly different way, when looking at quick diagnostic units, one study talked about the potential economic savings of four and a half inpatient beds a day, which to me sounds a lot more than the $1,200 for the observation units. Promising stuff. Anything interesting or concerns you had you wanted to point out about this study? Well, I think it's important to kind of take a step back and look at what this study is. So I think it's a really policy level view of a problem confronting legislators and policymakers in general. I think that when you try and drill down and look at the granular findings, it's very hard to make conclusions from this study about any particular patient population or any particular condition. I think it's pretty hard to apply this to individuals. Yeah, I think I completely agree. When I was reading it and I wanted to say, for example, look at, well, what were the severity of the pneumonia that they looked at in this population? Did they look at the CURB-65 or the pneumonia severity index that wasn't reported in this study? So it's hard for me to know what those patients looked like in the trial that examined alternatives to inpatient hospitalization. And so perhaps they wouldn't be different than the patients I would already send home with a pneumonia. Thanks for bringing that up, Jay. Any important limitations that we haven't discussed? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's just important to remember that this is really just a compilation of, of many disparate interventions, outcomes, and conditions. And, you know, to interpret each finding like an odds ratio, the power is reliant on the individual study. None of the findings were composite findings. So you mentioned that this really applies to policymakers, hospital administrators, division heads, but less the, the clinician trying to decide on whether he should send a patient home. And I think that's an important message. What would you say is the main learning point that you would hope people would take away from this uh, article? The main learning point is this is a hypothesis generating that alternatives to inpatient hospitalization have moderate evidence that they are feasible, that they are safe, and that they can actually affect cost savings and have increased patient satisfaction. So I think there's a lot of potential research and outcomes that we can 
take from this, but it still needs more research as to how we apply it to person by person. Thanks for bringing that article up. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I'm going to move on now to the article that I covered this week, entitled Community Acquired Pneumonia Incidents Before and After Proton Pump Inhibitor Prescription. It's a population-based study. First author is Fatma Othman in the BMJ, October 18th, 2016. Kieran, what would you say the bottom line is for this article? Well, Jay, this cohort study and self-controlled case series of about 160,000 adults who were initiated as new users of a proton pump inhibitor between the years of 1990 and 2013 in the United Kingdom demonstrated an association between the use of PPIs and the development of community-acquired pneumonia. However, the association between these two conditions was found to be related to unmeasured patient factors, i.e. confounding factors, and not the actual prescription of the proton pump inhibitor itself. Wow, that's incredibly interesting. Why did you choose this article? Well, PPI use in its prevalence in our population is extraordinarily high. It's estimated up to 10% of all individuals in an outpatient setting are on PPIs. And so even if the risks of a medication like a PPI is low, when it's so broadly used, you're more likely to see those adverse effects in your population. And some of the prior literature has raised the possibility that they can increase your risk of pneumonia. There's biological plausibility for that. If you inhibit the acid in your stomach, which plays a role in, in innate immunity, then there's plausibility for it. But we just don't have any good randomized control data to be able to actually definitively answer that question. We've made some advances in analytical techniques and statistics to help clarify the question overall. Okay, so why don't you take us through the design of this study? Well, they used administrative data from the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which is a large United Kingdom-based electronic database, and it's the primary care records. And they linked these with hospital episode statistics database and the Office for National Statistics Mortality data, basically a whole bunch of clinical data on the patients uh, that they included from this Clinical Practice Research Data Link and what happens to them. And what was the other design of the study? There were two separate study designs uh, within this study itself. The first was a self-controlled case series. So cases, those that develop the outcome, in this case pneumonia, serve as their own controls. Um, and you define a risk period during or after exposure to the proton pump inhibitor. In this case, it was 30 days after starting the proton pump inhibitor, as well as the duration of the exposure to that medication, uh, and then also control periods. Um, and what this does is it quantifies relative incidence so the incidence in the risk periods relative to the incidence in the control periods. So the other was just a good old-fashioned cohort study. So all patients from the database who were prescribed a proton pump inhibitor were matched to controls who had not received a proton pump inhibitor, but were similar in nature, and looked at a variety of potential contributing factors to the development of a pneumonia in these individuals. So that included smoking and alcohol use, immunosuppression, other comorbidities, frequency of visits to their family physician, as well as their socioeconomic status. Okay, so who were the patients that made it into this study? So they took a random sample of patients from that database, which equated to 160,000 adults between 1990 and 2013, who were newly prescribed a proton pump inhibitor. And then they also recorded for how long they took the medication for. 
They determined this sample size of 160,000 people to detect a hazard ratio of 1.1, and that assumed that the development of pneumonia was on a rate of six per thousand patient days. So if you followed patients for a thousand days, six of them would develop a pneumonia. Overall, the patients in this study were about 56 years old. 55% of them were women, so a pretty even gender split. The users of proton pump inhibitors were more likely to have been smokers. So 43% of them were smokers compared to about 33% than the control group, as well as were um, higher consumers of alcohol. So 29% uh, had higher consumption of alcohol compared to about 24% in the control group. And they also had a higher burden of comorbidities and opioid and corticosteroid use. So all of these things putting them at risk for development of pneumonia, potentially independent of the PPI itself. So what was the uh, exposure that they were looking at? It was all about exposure to a new prescription. These were not previous users of proton pump inhibitors. Their primary outcome looked at the development of community-acquired pneumonia. That was both requiring inpatient care and also those who could receive outpatient care. For those who, you know, developed more than one pneumonia, then the two separate events had to be at least 84 days apart to be considered a separate pneumonia event. Otherwise, they would have been deemed just an extension of the prior pneumonia. Um, And then for sake of accuracy is around how they defined what a pneumonia was in this cohort of individuals. There was a broad definition where that that included all uh, infections that were lower respiratory tract infections or chest infections, more of a narrow definition, uh, i.e. purely a pneumonia diagnosis, and then also those from the mortality records uh, where pneumonia was listed as their cause of death. So what were the main findings of the study? So on average, and this is kind of neat, proton pump inhibitors were only used for a 28-day period, so fairly short. Now, I'm not sure because we don't know in this kind of study design whether that was because patients stopped using them. We know that patients are often uh, non-adherent to medications. Or if they were just prescribed for about a one-month period as a trial treatment for you know, some uh, condition, maybe acid reflux, to see if they responded or not. The, the primary finding really was that patients who were newly prescribed a proton pump inhibitor had a hazard ratio of about 1.7 to developing pneumonia compared to controls after you controlled for the factors such as smoking, alcohol use, and comorbidity. So in other words, if you took 1,000 individuals and followed them for a year, uh, about 10 would develop a pneumonia who did not use PPIs, and about 17 people would develop a pneumonia who were newly prescribed a PPI. Finally, there was an increase of about 1.2 in the rate of incidence of pneumonia in the first 30 days after prescription and a 1.5 increase in the remaining duration of use of the PPIs. Hmm. So why did they conclude that this is not specifically due to the PPI then? Yeah, it's it's very interesting because you would look at face value and say, well, that's pretty clear. So here's how it works. So if you looked at the incident rate of pneumonia before and after the exposure to the proton pump inhibitor, the actual rate of incidence of pneumonia was higher in the period before patients got uh, PPI medications. And then after they got a PPI, the actual rate of incidence of pneumonia decreased. So if you kind of analyze this or looked at it slightly different way, the rates of pneumonia were the same before and after PPI exposure the rates of pneumonia increased in the patients who did not take a PPI. 
So to kind of put that all together and summarize it for you, Jay, it all suggests that the patients who received proton pump inhibitors were at an increased risk of developing a pneumonia to begin with, and that the prescription of the proton pump inhibitor itself may have been at the time of an interaction with the healthcare system. So say, for example, they got a pneumonia because they were at high risk, then for whatever reason, a well-meaning physician added on a proton pump inhibitor at the same time that they saw their family doctor or were in the emergency room or admitted to hospital. So therefore, the rate of community-acquired pneumonia isn't actually affected by the prescription of a proton pump inhibitor in this study. Wow, that's quite a lot to digest. Are there any uh, interesting points or observations you wanted to make? Well, it is a lot to digest, pun I hope intended, since we're talking about acid inhibitors. But it is a bewilderingly complicated statistical study. It took me a long time to really digest through this. But it's interesting because it takes the limitations that we have in the literature of a lack of randomized control trials and good prospective data to really try to fundamentally get at this important question of whether these proton pump inhibitors increase rates of pneumonia because they're so widely used. But there is one point that you should understand that a key assumption in the types of designs that they used that we talked about in the methods, and those are known as the self-controlled case series, they don't account for factors that may change over time between exposed and unexposed individuals. Like, for example, if the exposed individuals who are going to take a PPI stopped smoking or cut down on their alcohol use, it just assumes that those are stable and unchanging over time. Okay, so why don't you summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses of the study? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that really we should regard this study with optimism and have it uh, reassure us. But nevertheless, you should have lingering doubts about the true effect of PPI therapy on pneumonia development without our gold standard prospective randomized control data. Although, because I don't think we can expect that to happen in the foreseeable future, this should be a fairly reassuring study that you're not putting your patients at increased harm if you're prescribing the PPIs for an appropriate indication. Yeah, I agree. I definitely found this reassuring. So who, who does this study apply to? Well, it's a broad-reaching study, right? Any community-dwelling adult who is newly prescribed a proton pump inhibitor. Now, it's important, though, to make that distinction about community-dwelling adults. It's not a study of hospitalized patients or critically ill patients who are then prescribed a proton pump inhibitor. And that's important because there is data to support an overall increased risk in pneumonia in critically ill patients when prescribed a PPI. And what do you think the main learning points of the article are? Well, I think that the use of proton pump inhibitors in community-dwelling adults probably does not increase the risk of pneumonia. But as always, the other potential risks not covered by this study that includes the development of C. difficile infection should always be weighed against the benefits and the indications for the treatment with careful reevaluation of the proposed beneficial effects. If you try to treat somebody with a PPI for acid reflux and it doesn't help, take the medication away so that you're not exposing them to other risks of uh, PPI therapy. Great. Well, Jay, thanks so much. That was a really fun uh, episode to record. Let's get to my favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment, where we are talking about what we are reading about. Jay, what's catching your attention this week? Yeah, so I actually uh, was on the internet and I saw the FDA approved the first artificial pancreas. I immediately was intrigued because I thought maybe it was talking about some sort of stem cell thing that I had been asleep on. 
But it's a little bit more tame than that. But I still think it's quite interesting that the FDA approved a device that is essentially a closed loop system that a patient with type 1 diabetes that would usually use an insulin pump can use this new pump that has a skin sensor for their blood glucose. And then the device itself will deliver an adjusted dose of basal insulin after assessing what the patient's blood glucose is at any given time. Wow. The future is here. So I, I chose kind of an ironic article this week, and it covers the city of Salinas, California, which is a huge farming community in the Salinas Valley and where a lot of California's produce is grown. So it's kind of a sad story because despite the plethora of food that's all around, the public health officials in the area have described a crisis of poverty and malnutrition for the tens of thousands of farm workers and their families who grow and tend to the fields of, you know, lettuce and broccoli and celery, etc. More than a third of the children in the Salinas City Elementary School District are homeless. Diabetes rates there are skyrocketing. And 85% of the farm workers in the valley are overweight or obese. And a lot of that is a socioeconomically driven issue, right? That they can't afford uh, healthier foods and the popularity, cultural preferences and cost of, you know, sugar, sugary drinks and high calorie foods are contributing to this. So it's just sort of an interesting reflection when you can be surrounded bountifully by food. It doesn't mean that you are going to be well nourished. That's really sobering. Well, Jay, sorry to finish on such a dour note, but I really found today's episode exciting and interesting. Thank you for your intelligent insight, and I hope you come back and join us soon. I would love to. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rounds Table Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?